Stand by, Rutherford County. The WGNS Action Line continues a search for truth. News time right now, 8.15. You're tuned in to WGNS on this Monday morning, today the 17th of August. And this morning, our guest is over the phone. It is Dr. Lewis Karakudas with MTSU. And uh, doctor, at first I got to ask you, did I pronounce that name correct? You did. Uh, Good. That's that's a first. (laughs) (laughs) So, I guess first, start off with your background a little bit. Tell us what you do with MTSU. Sure. I'm a history professor at MTSU, but my main role at the university is director of the Albert Gore Research Center. And the Albert Gore Research Center is a regional and political history archive that preserves the papers and artifacts of, of Tennessee's history. You, you know, the, the Albert Gore Research Center is such a fascinating I guess, aspect about MTSU and the things that go on there at MTSU. But it's just so interesting because you gather so much history and just hold on to it. Uh, That's correct. We have the papers of seven former members of Congress. Uh, We have the Senate papers of Senator Albert Gore. And again, this is Albert Gore Sr., MTSU class of 1932 and father of the former vice president, but someone who had a distinguished uh, career beginning in the 1930s uh, until he retired in 1970. So it is, it's it's an important part of how we preserve what has happened in our community and our state and that binds us together in our common history. You know, I don't think most people who are from this area even realize that Albert Gore Sr. actually attended MTSU years and years and years ago. He did, yeah. He was a uh, he. He started going to the university in the very late 1920s. He was born in 1907, and uh, you know went to college here. And at the time, MTSU was pretty much a teacher's college. That was our our function and purpose at the time. And uh, the elder Mr. Gore, in fact, pursued a career as a teacher. Served as a teacher and a principal, school superintendent before going into politics in the mid 1930s. Uh, entering Congress in 1939. And, of course, MTSU first started back in 1911. He was class of 1932. So I can imagine the history, the changes that he saw in that very beginning period. That's right, yeah. Um, I mean, we were a small uh, uh, public institution uh, that was created as part of Tennessee's efforts to modernize its public education system. So we have modern public schools series of laws that were passed in the teens and then later in the 20s. And so we needed institutions, what used to be called normal colleges, to trade the teachers that would staff those public schools. So it's also a story of how Tennessee became more modern and, by extension, more prosperous uh, and uh, you know, more effective as, a, as an economy and as a society. Dr. Kerry Kudas with us this morning, and he is with the Albert Igor, the Albert Gore Research Center there on the MTSU campus. And something interesting that's happened over the last, I guess, couple of months, uh, you guys have even taken in 
video cassettes, I guess beta tapes, all that kind of stuff from a local TV station in the Nashville area that has tons and tons of news stories on it. That's correct. Uh, this is a big acquisition, uh, and we are in the process of, uh, of uh, organizing and processing this acquisition. We have the videotape news archive of WKRN, Channel 2 News in Nashville. And it's an interesting story how we uh, came to acquire this, if you'd like to hear the story. Yeah, I, I would love to learn more. Yeah. We, um, I, I came to the, uh, to the university from teaching uh, for almost 20 years at the University of Southern Mississippi in 2015. And about a year after I got here, I got a call from uh, the station manager explained to me that the station had been sold uh, and that there was cost-cutting going on and, and that they needed to find a home for their tapes. And would we be interested in providing an archival home for these news uh, stories? These are the stories that were broadcast on the evening news. And I met with my staff, and we looked at each other, and we said, well, you know, this is a great opportunity, even though it's a massive uh, collection. And this is how archives work, and that's why I tell the story. Archives become the repository of the things that are generated over time, newspapers, letters, in this case, uh, video stories. And by preserving them, we make them available to scholars, students, people in the community going forward so that they can have access to this history. And, of course, news stories from the 70s to the early 2000s, which this particular archive uh, collection covers, uh, that encompasses a terrifically important time period in the history of Nashville and Middle Tennessee. So it's a very important source. So will uh, some of these news stories, will they be able to be found online by folks in the future by going to the Albert Gore Research Center online? Yes. Um, right now they're not uh, online because it's such a large collection. We're still in the process of, of seeking the resources and uh, um, uh, to uh, digitize them and to catalog them. But once it is fully digitized, because they are in you know old-style tape, uh, we, will, we do plan to put them online so that they'll be available uh, to the public, uh, to anybody with access to the Internet. And we have a large amount of material already online of other collections, and anyone that's interested in learning more about the Albert Gore Research Center could go to our website, and that's at mtsu.edu forward slash Gore Center. Or if they just Google Albert Gore Research Center, that will take you there. And we have some very interesting collections online that people can consult. You know, it's interesting. The Albert Gore Research Center first opened back in 1993. So, you know, that that's a good, good while back, but it's really not that old considering how much history is within your walls there. That's true. Uh, yeah, the story of how we came to be uh, created really is a story of the elder Mr. Gore, Mr. Albert Gore Sr., uh, donating his Senate papers to the university. He was always a devoted MTSU alum. Uh, and around that, the university created this research center, and I have the honor uh, and responsibility of running it since 2015. But we have items that go back to some of the earliest points in Murfreesboro and Rutherford County's history. We have uh, some old land records and the like that reach back to the very early 19th century. We also have 
what we think are the oldest photographs of Murfreesboro. These are photographs that were taken during the Union occupation in the 1860s of the town square. Uh, these came to us by way of a donation. So we have things that cover a very large uh, range of time. Most of our materials cover uh, the 20th century. We have, for example, important collections on World War II, both in terms of oral histories. We've interviewed many hundreds of veterans over the years. We have letters and newsletters and other documents that show what life was like on the home front during World War II. So uh, the collections are broad and deep, and they're the kind of historical collections that can appeal to anybody, that they're, they're instantly understandable and interesting and very, um, very fun to look at. You, you know, myself, I, I've always been a huge fan of the Smithsonian Museums in Washington, D.C., and I've always enjoyed just wandering around, just looking at all the history there. And some of the history that you see in places like that, it's almost hard to believe that whatever it is you're looking at really existed, really happened. But I'm sure there, for you, at the Albert Gore Research Center, I, I'm sure there's certain pieces that stand out to you and they're probably hard to take in or hard to imagine. What are some of the more interesting pieces maybe that you find just fascinating? Well, uh, there are some things that are my, my favorites. Uh, uh, and I'll, I'll tell a couple. Of all the many wonderful documents we have in the Gore Center's collection, my personal favorite set of documents are the transcripts of Albert Gore Sr.'s radio addresses that he began giving uh, in 1940 and did throughout the 1940s when he was a member of Congress. And he would speak on Sunday right after people got out of church, you know, kind of midday Sunday on WSM radio. And I've used these uh, transcripts in my classes because they show the uh, 1940, 1941, that is the opening of World War II, the attack on Pearl Harbor, and the uh, war in the Pacific unfolding in real time. And in particular, uh, Senator Gore's uh, radio address given on the day that Pearl Harbor was attacked is very moving and very powerful. The context of it is this. He had planned to, uh, he was in Nashville, not in, in Washington, because it was December, come back for the, for the Christmas break, and shows up at the station and is, is confronted with this breaking news of the, uh, of the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor and gives a very powerful uh, address, which he wrote um, and typed up uh, in a transcript, about what was at stake. Uh, and we think at the Gore Center that this might have been the first governmental response about the Pearl Harbor attack that anybody in Middle Tennessee might have received because it was, you know, he was the first public official, as far as we know, to speak about it. So that's one of my favorite um, uh, documents, and, and they're very powerful. Again, with us this morning, Dr. Lewis Kirikotis with MTSU and the uh, Albert Gore Research Center there on the MTSU campus. But what an interesting place to be a part of. I mean, the history within those walls there and in all the documentation that you have, I guess, files and files of all kinds of paperwork. It just sounds like such a interesting, fascinating place. And I know you brought up 
some of Al Gore Sr.'s speeches that he had back in, you know, the, the 50s, the 40s, stuff like that. I've always thought that a really good, a really well-written speech is something that would sound good still today. And I'm curious, those old speeches that you have, are they written in a different style or are they speeches that you could take today and, and read and they almost would sound like they are in today's times? Well, my answer is both. One of the things that I've learned from looking at the type scripts that Senator Gore uh, prepared for his radio speeches was what a careful writer he was. He's a very good writer, first of all. Uh, you see his drafts. Sometimes the drafts in the file are handwritten on the back of hotel stationery. He may have been traveling, and he's got a handwritten draft before it's typed up uh, by whoever typed it in his office. And then you see his hand going over the typescript to make revisions before he gives the, uh, uh, the radio address. So they're very well done. They're carefully crafted. They are very literary in the sense of being easy to understand and outstanding examples of clear, concise communication. So they really, they're, they're both. They're, they're not fancy. He's, uh, Albert Gore Sr. was from the Upper Cumberland. He was uh, you know, a man of the soil, of the earth, of the people. And he carried that through his entire career. But he was also a, 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 an amazingly powerful and sophisticated communicator who just was a good writer. Uh, I've read those files and have admired the craft just as someone who struggles with writing uh, <laughs> on his own. So that's one aspect of it. It's, it's really quite powerful to see how other people would communicate to the public. Now, I know we're almost out of time here, but just two more questions I'm just really curious about, both kind of revolving around WGNS radio, but the Gore Center just acquired a collection, still unprocessed, I think, donated by Cecil Elrod, and Mr. Elrod's grandfather is the one who founded WGNS, and the collection contains some historical material documenting the early history of the radio station, WGNS. That's correct. Uh, in fact, uh, Mr. Elrod and I met just last month where he uh, delivered a few boxes of material that include uh, a variety of things documenting his family's important history in Murfreesboro, uh, and included in that are some of the founding documents, the incorporation documents. I believe there are uh, documents related to the federal communications licensing in this collection. So some very early uh, WGNS uh, history. I've also been speaking with the head of WGNS, uh, at least in terms of a telephone call and emails, about archiving some of your own news stories, apparently my understanding is that WGNS has a large collection of MP3s documenting their radio news broadcasts. And uh, that would also be something that we could make available to the public and have as a long-term preservation uh, uh, resource for the people of Murfreesboro, Rutherford County, and, and all of Tennessee. You know, it's really interesting because a lot of these old MP3 recordings, some of which, you know, I'm sure were done late 90s, 2000s, some were WAV files, converted to MP3 files, etc. But a lot of these are involving interviews with local residents of all walks of life. Some are interviews with police officers, interviews with police chiefs in the past. But there's so much history there that's audio. And, you know, it's sometimes hard to come across 
audio recordings that are, you know, dated however far back, but they're always interesting to listen to. Well, you really raise a good point. And for people out in the community who hear MP3 and WAVE, those <laughs> and wondering, what is that? Those are just technical uh, audio recording formats, and we at the Gore Center have uh, a lot of expertise in working with those. But your bigger point is a very important one, and this really was relevant to the uh, decision to accept the WKRN news broadcast tapes. Uh, do I want to be someone that helps preserve this important source of what has happened in our community? Yes, that's what archives do, and that's why we did this. Broadcast news is something that is not regularly archived, or the archives have been spotty. We're used to thinking of the newspapers being uh, you know, the, the main source for local news, and newspapers are easy to preserve because you know, the, the newspaper is printed on paper, and then they were bound in libraries. This is all before the Internet. Now they're electronic as well. So it's the, the work of preserving these items of history uh, it really falls on archives and archivists uh, at places like the War Center, uh, and it gives us a responsibility and an obligation to make sure that we don't have a cultural and social amnesia in our local history and our state's history. You know, the, the fascinating thing about history, of course, it, of course, always contains things that we can learn from. It also documents the past. But then there's always that saying, you know, if we forget, if we ignore some of the history from years past, we're going to repeat it. Yes, that is an old, an old yarn. And, and there's some truth to that. Uh, Mark Twain is reputed to say that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does stammer. <laughs> and, uh, you know, all we can know about our society and about human activities and our culture, and indeed even our identity and how we situate ourselves in the world, is by looking backward. We don't have, as far as I know, we don't have the ability to predict the future. I, I can't. <laughs> but we can look backward and understand where we've been, what conflicts we've suffered, uh, what conflicts we've overcome, how we've defined our uh, ourselves as a, as a nation and as a community. And that all is history. And for that history to, to work, for our understanding to work, we need to preserve these sources. Uh, what people learn from those sources can be as diverse as all of humanity and as diverse as individual people can be. But if you don't have those documents, those audio recordings, those oral histories, those um, uh, artifacts like you see at the Smithsonian, uh, then we have amnesia, and that is not, not healthy. Very good point. You know, it was a, a philosopher, George Santayana, who was part of Harvard University so many years ago, who was the one who said that about you know, if we can't remember the past, then we're condemned to repeat it. So I find it interesting that that came from a university professor, that saying, and we're talking about a university here, MTSU, a local university, and we're talking about preserving history. So all of it's very important. Yes. And, you know, MTSU is a public university whose mission is to serve the people of Tennessee. And that's why I'm honored to be part of the MTSU family, because we really are an institution devoted uh, to serving the public. Dr. Lewis Karakudas is with us this morning. 
and he is part of the Albert Gore Research Center on the MTSU campus. And if anybody would like to learn more about that, what's the easiest way to do so? Well, the easiest way to do so is to go to our website, and that is mtsu.edu forward slash Gore Center. Or they could just Google Albert Gore Research Center, and that will come up in a Google search as well. Well, thank you for joining us this morning. We appreciate it, and we'll talk to you again soon. You're very, very welcome. Have a good day. You too. Time right now, 835. You're tuned in to WGNS. We have more news, more information coming up. A quick check on the traffic right now, and then we'll be right back. Good morning. THB remains on the scene of this 18-wheeler crash out here. It was carrying sugar. It flipped earlier this morning out here on 24 westbound. It's uh, before you get to Joby Jackson. Keep that in mind. Coming out of Coffee County, headed towards Rutherford County on 24 going westbound. Prince's Hot Chicken is the original hot chicken in Middle Tennessee. They're online at princesshotchicken.com. I'm Commander Chuck. You're on time traffic. Hi, this is Peter Demas with Demas' Restaurant. We're excited to announce that our dining rooms are back up and running. We may not be at full capacity and we may not have all of your favorite menu items or the favorite touches that you're used to having, but at the same time, we are excited to be able to serve you. We have brought our servers back. We have retrained them. Our cooks are excited to put the steaks on plates that you can cut with a real knife as opposed to plasticware from your home. And I invite your family to come and join our family back at Demas' Restaurants on Broad Street in Murfreesboro. This portion of the show brought to you by Mabco. How do you feel about two for three dollar Lay's or Cheetos? What about regular M&Ms for only a dollar? These are just a handful of the sweet deals you'll find right now at Mabco. You'll be surprised how they always have great deals for your everyday cravings. And don't forget to download their My Rewards mobile app to earn points toward items like ice cold fountain drinks and even fuel. The app is available for both iPhones and Androids. Stop by and save at your local Mapco today. The Action Line on FM 100.5, 101.9, AM 1450, and WGNSradio.com. We're Rutherford County's place to talk. Right now that time, 8.37, you're tuned in to WGNS. Today, Monday, it is August 17th. Our guest now in studio with us this morning, Cynthia Schaefen, Associate Director of the MTSU Center for Health and Human Services. And uh, I believe Karen Shane was also going to be with us this morning. Yes. Can't, can't be, though. And Cannot so be with us this morning. You are here. I am here. Carry it all. Yes, <laughs> yes. I guess, tell us a little bit about what you do at MTSU each day. Well, uh, as you said, I'm the Associate Director uh, for Community Programs at the Center for Health and Human Services. We are a non-academic affiliated uh, unit on campus. We are multidisciplinary, working with uh, multiple departments and, and groups on campus that have an interest in health. Uh, our mission and vision is better health and well-being for Tennesseans and pretty much anything that involves health we are interested in. Uh, most of our work we actually do off campus. We uh, do public health programs that reach all 95 Tennessee counties and we've also gotten involved in some multi-state initiatives as well. So uh, better health is what we're all about. You know when you, you hear about health and medical issues and all that you, you don't think about storytelling but that's something that 
you're going into the direction of, I guess, more so, and that's storytelling. And yes. if you tell somebody a good story, they're able to grab a hold of it, better understand whatever the topic may be. But, yes. but what is it about storytelling and what direction are you going? Well, uh, when we first got involved with uh, the Untold Project and Campus Diaries, storytelling was not really something that uh, that we had, had done before. It was actually very new to us. Uh, I had gotten involved with uh, Karen Shane through uh, a cancer-focused organization, and we are still very involved in doing things for cancer survivors. But one of the other things she uh, founded was the Untold Project, which uh, it wasn't specifically health-focused, but it was storytelling. And some of the things uh, that that project addressed were homelessness, domestic violence, relationships, uh, eating disorders, as well as health issues. And as a outreach of that project, as an outgrowth of that project, rather, the uh, uh, Campus Diaries was created. And it also looks at things not just health focused, but health is a big part of that, especially during this pandemic, which uh, the project came about right before the pandemic hit. So uh, we recognize mental health as an issue. And some of these things that I just mentioned, homelessness, domestic violence, relationship, there's all a uh, mental health component to each one of those. So storytelling gives people an outlet. Uh, not everybody needs counseling. Uh, a lot of people do. There are a lot of mental health uh, conditions and diagnoses that do require professional help, but a lot of times people just need to be heard and they need to have their story told to feel validated. Uh, and as someone reading another person's story, it tends to also help you feel like, hey, I'm not alone in this. There's somebody else going through the same thing. So that's how we got involved in it. It is something new to us. Um, however, when we launched this in the spring, we, uh, we were flooded with uh, submissions to Campus Diaries. So we know that students want to talk and they, they want to be heard. When you hear about stories involving somebody's personal mental health, they're usually stories that will often touch you in some way. I, I mean, there's stories about, like you were saying, there's mm -hmm. domestic violence, there's everything from struggling with addiction to I grew up with, you know, X, Y, Z. It could be a right. million different things. Right. But these stories, when they're told by the person who went through the story, I think it helps them in a huge way. It's it's almost like therapy for yes. them to get it yes. off their chest. It's very therapeutic. I definitely agree. Bases, uh, military bases all across the country right now are, mm -hmm. are experiencing a lot of problems with mental health. They're experiencing mm -hmm. more depression than they've ever seen before because a lot of the bases are on lockdown due to COVID-19. Right. They're not allowing those like family members on the outside to come in and visit because they don't want to bring more right. of the coronavirus onto their base. Right. So you're hearing more about, more about depression in those different avenues such as military bases. Is it similar on the different campuses for colleges? Uh, yes, and in fact, the uh, Chronicle of Higher Ed just recently put out a uh, publication called Overwhelmed, uh, Campuses in Crisis. Uh, they, of course, have a lot of statistics in there about what's going on uh, with colleges across America. 
there was the Healthy Mind Study, which was cited in this publication uh, of the Chronicle, and it states uh, that what are students dealing with? Well, 36% have uh, major or moderate depression, 31% have anxiety disorder, uh, 37% have ever been diagnosed with some sort of um, mental disorder, 24% have taken a psychiatric medication in the last year. Um, it was really interesting that 6% said they would think less of someone who received mental health treatment, but only 40 or 47% thought that most people would think badly of someone, yet only 6% of them said they would. Um, so there's definitely issues going on, like you mentioned, the general population, uh, but students in particular. And, you know, we all have life issues and problems and challenges. But when you look at students, they, uh, you know, they have all those same things, plus the stresses of being a student and all that comes with that. Um, just life transition of uh, of coming to college for for a lot of them paying their bills sometimes working a second job uh, just learning how to be uh, independent and an adult in addition to all of these other things we all deal with they have that so it's not really surprising um, that uh, the statistics are what they are and then you throw in a pandemic on top of it and uh, being here in Middle Tennessee, we have the tornadoes, uh, a lot of Middle Tennessee students impacted by that. So it, it can be very, very overwhelming. You know, I, I've got a son who works in a hospital in California. He's in the Army, on an Army base. Then I've got a stepson who just went back to school for this next semester, and he's in school in Kentucky. He's a junior. While they're both about the same age, they're both in totally different places not only in the country, but in life. But yet, there's so many coincidences. There's so many things that are very similar. A college campus, a military base, yes. the different changes they're both seeing with not being allowed to do this, not being allowed to do that, all because of COVID-19. Right. But yet, one thing they can both talk about that is very similar is the rate of depression, the number of mm -hmm. friends who are just down when they didn't used to be down right. i mean they're seeing so much depression all around them because people can't interact like they used right. to and, and we're as humans we're made to interact we are social creatures that's exactly right and we are we are made to interact and we hope through this project that um, we will be able to do that creatively we uh before all of the restrictions uh, started we had actually planned a photojournalism exhibit on campus and of course everything closed down we are planning to do that again this fall uh, of course we'll have a plan b and a plan c and a plan d and we will do those plans safely within campus guidelines but we do plan on having that exhibit which will showcase some of these stories these diary entries uh, photos of students who were willing to be uh, photographed. We also are doing um planning a film which we have a uh, an Emmy award winning uh, producer in New York who is donating her time to help with that uh, we have a partnership with uh, chicken soup for the soul entertainment and crackle TV so that's where uh, that's where uh, that film will be uh, housed we also uh, are planning a podcast and we'll put that on uh, 
networks such as Apple TV and uh, some of those platforms that are out there for those types of productions. So it's it's more than just the blog. The blog was the start of it. We got halted temporarily, but we are not stopping. Uh, we hope that this will be a model for colleges across the nation. And one of the things that the center wants to do with the Untold Project is to help find grant funding uh, where we can go and do this for colleges across the, the uh, nation who want want to do this. We have a toolkit. Um, I, I did not mention earlier, uh, one of our students actually uh, helped us bring Campus Diaries to life. We had the, the Untold Project has been around since 2017. Uh, but the center had a spring intern this year from the Community and Public Health Program at MTSU. And uh, Monica Hunley, actually, uh, it was her idea to turn this into a diary. And uh, so she brought life to Untold and helped us transition it to college campuses. But we want to find some dollars, some grant dollars, and be able to to uh, help other colleges do the same thing that we've done here. Again, Cynthia Schaefen with us this morning, Associate Director of the MTSU Center for Health and Human Services. And these stories that you're going to be, I guess, told, you're going to be a part of listening to them mm -hmm. and editing the, the video footage, the mm -hmm. audio, whatever it may be. But these stories have the potential, I'm sure, to change a lot of lives. Because if you're out there on the streets, you volunteer with the homeless mm -hmm. community, for mm -hmm. example, you hear story after story from a lot of those who are homeless about how, you know, mm -hmm. my father used to beat me. He locked me into a closet if I got a bad grade or they didn't feed me for mm -hmm. five days. We didn't have food now. You, you hear all these stories. Mm -hmm. And then you're able to see, well, now I understand a little bit more about right. why you're homeless stories I think have the potential to change lives of those mm -hmm. who are able to hear them and comprehend what that person is saying so I think projects like this have the potential to help out thousands of others absolutely and our tagline is uh, campus diaries behind the smiles and it's just what you described you don't know what someone you're you're sitting face to face with someone you don't know what's behind that smile or what's brought them to the place that they are and and they do have potential to, to change lives, to inspire and um, encourage people to, despite what life throws at you, here's how you can overcome. Here's what I did. Uh, and look at me. I'm thriving. Have you heard, I guess, a, a few highlights of any of the stories that you're going to be working on yet? Uh, we actually have from the spring, I think we had close to 50 that are posted. Uh, you can go to untoldproject.org and we have several of those posted. Uh, one of them in particular uh, I brought with me. Uh, it really spoke to me. Uh, it was submitted or posted on April 27th. I beat cancer today. What did you do? Um, so we just have really compelling stories on there and I'm not sure what's in store for fall. I don't know what kind of stories that we will get, but we've really got a collection on there from our spring semester. Uh, anything from, uh, just random student life to, uh, this person who, who beat cancer and talks about, uh, the struggle that they went through. So just to clarify, as we close out this morning, the stories that you're recording that you're uh, you know recording the audio of the mm -hmm. video of are these only 
college students who are telling the stories or are they are they also former college students? What are they? Uh, the Campus Diaries is just college students. The Untold Project is more global. Okay, yes. very interesting stuff. Yeah, and we're MTSU is the pilot site, so we are the first and only college so far. Again, Cynthia yes. Chafin with us this morning, Associate Director of the MTSU Center for Health and Human Services. Is is there a way for people to, to contact you if they want to tell their story, if they want to be a part of it? Is there a way to get involved like that? Yes, they can go to our website, uh, mtsu.edu slash chhs. We have a link to the Untold Project, or they can go to untoldproject.org, and there's a, a direct tab for Campus Diaries. So either way would work great. Well, thank you for joining us this thank morning. Thank you. Time right now, 8.52. You're tuned in to WGNS. That again was Cynthia Chafin, Associate Director of the MTSU Center for Health and Human Services. And you'll be able to learn more about that later on this morning after we post all this on our website, WGNSradio.com. The Action Line on FM 100.5, 101.9, AM 1450, and WGNSRadio.com. We're Rutherford County's place to talk. Listen live to WGNS Radio on our website, and Alexa, or Google devices. Search WGNS Radio for on-demand podcasts in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Plus, we have direct links to podcasts at WGNSRadio.com. Hi, this is Gator with Tire World Off-Road. We're your local rough country dealer. So when you're ready to add some character to your rig, ask for Gator at Tire World Off-Road on Memorial Boulevard. This is Sean Brown at Tire World on Broad Street. Online at TireWorld.us. Precision Air knows you want the air inside your home as safe and clean as possible. Clean the air in your home with an affordable UV system. WGNS listeners get $50 off. 615-930-0088. A whole house air purifier. 615-930-0088. Liberty Mutual Insurance Company presents... And Doug. Lemu. When we're not telling people that Liberty Mutual customizes your car insurance so you only pay for what you need... I've actually been moonlighting as a DJ. Check it! Here's the good part! Liberty, 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 Liberty. Only pay for what you need at LibertyMutual.com. Napa know-how. At Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care centers, get a $25 prepaid Visa card when you get any Napa automotive battery. It's the best deal for some of the best batteries from some of the best car people around. But we might be a little partial. Anywho, pick up any Napa automotive battery and save 25 bucks. Do it yourself or have it done for you. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care centers. While supplies last, offer ends 831.20. COVID-19 has changed our world, and First National Bank of Murfreesboro is here to help you. We understand your uncertainty, and First National Bank of Murfreesboro is always here for our customers. We encourage the use of our digital tools, ATM, mobile banking, internet, and even the drive through First National Bank of Murfreesboro, 2230 Mercury Boulevard. Now a part of the Capstar Bank family. Member FDIC. The Action Line on FM 100.5, 101.9, AM 1450, and WGNSRadio.com. We're Rutherford County's Place to Talk.
Right now that time, 8.55, you're tuned to WGNS this morning. And our last guest for the morning, Dr. Ben Stickle, Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at MTSU. And I know we don't have a ton of time, you know, but your topic is probably one of the more interesting ones And in that, not to say the others weren't, but it's pretty fascinating talking about I guess, crime studies and and trying to see how the whole COVID-19 pandemic unfolds when it relates to crime. What are we looking at right now? Yeah, so what we've seen in our early studies is that there has been a dramatic uh, drop in crime. Uh, Many different locations around the world, different types of crime uh, changed and shifted dramatically when we went into lockdowns in different states and different communities at different times. And so really the focus of the study was to look at how crime has changed because of those lockdowns. We have some theories for why that is and some encouragement for future research. You know, I guess anybody would hear that and they would just automatically assume, well, the reason crime dropped is because everybody was forced to stay home. But what, I mean, are you finding other reasons for this drop in crime though? I think that's really actually the primary focus on this. And that's kind of a shift from what we normally think. So many people will look at crime and say, well, it's the way you were raised or whether you have a great amount of self-control or what level of poverty you're in, et cetera. But when we entered the lockdowns per se, uh, and crime just dropped overnight, none of that changed, right? Your background, the way you were raised, uh, nothing about your socioeconomic status changed immediately, but somehow all the crime just suddenly either disappeared or changed entirely. And so what we argue is that the locations that we are at, the routine activities, if you will, that we engage in on a daily basis are impacting whether or not we have an opportunity to commit crime and therefore is the primary driving factor behind whether crime is going up or down and where and how that's actually happening. Looking back to March, when all of this really started to unfold, I know a lot of folks were going out there, they were buying ammunition, they were buying guns, some for the very first time. They were buying all the toilet paper for whatever reason, but the choices that people were making, some of which I thought were a bit different than what I would ever imagine for them to be making. Yeah, absolutely. So we saw just this dramatic shift in things that people did, where they went out, what they bought, how they behaved, how much time they spent online. So for example, we saw a very stark decrease in commercial burglary. I'm sorry, residential burglary because people are home, but an increase in commercial burglary because those places were closed. Uh, At the same token, we saw a rise in crime online, such as uh, cyber crime and fraud because people were exposed more. They're spending more time online as opposed to at the workplace where we saw a decrease in crime there. So it really supports this idea that crime is uh, specific and localized according to where people are at and what they're doing while they're there. Since COVID-19 first started, I noticed in public when you're at a store, gas station, wherever you are, you see more people participating in open carry of their firearm. You're seeing the guns right there on the side of their hip whenever in the past you used to you know, conceal your weapon if you're carrying one because you didn't want everybody to know. But now it's like everybody's changed the attitude. They want you to know, hey, I'm armed. Watch out for me. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Uh, I've seen a little bit of that, but I don't know if it's really a a true trend or just something I've noticed uh, when I've been out at the stores as well. Um, I'm actually working on a project to have a phone call later today with a 
the University in Florida looking at uh, gun crime during the pandemic to see how that actually transcribed. Uh, of course, as you mentioned, there's an increase in gun sales uh, and then people staying at home. So the question is, is there an increase in gun violence or a decrease during the pandemic? In which direction does it go and over how much time? So maybe the first two or three weeks of a lockdown were different than the last few weeks as well. Again, Dr. Ben Strickle with us or Stickle with us this morning, and you're talking about crime and you're doing a study about crime during the pandemic. I know we only have a minute left, but is there anything that really stands out to you that you found thus far? Yeah. So again, I'll just emphasize that many of the traditional criminological theories for why people commit crime that impact how we try to prevent it, I think we're unhinged during this pandemic. And what we see is the single most important factor is where people are at, where they're spending their time and how they move throughout the day. And if we understand that properly, and that rises to some level of um, notoriety that people begin looking at crime that way in a specific location, specific time with specific people, we have a greater opportunity to prevent it after we come out of this, knowing what factors actually impact crime. So we can learn more about this at mtsunews.com forward slash pandemic crime statistics stickle. I guess if we Google that, it should come up. You can easily find it and it's available. The the full article is available for free for the rest of the year. Sounds good. And it sounds like a very interesting study. So definitely whenever you start to come, I guess, to the conclusion, let us know. And, And that way we can tell everybody else what it is that you found. Absolutely. Right now, the time, nine o'clock. 